Hey, No Script listeners. Today's episode, The Laramie Project, is about a play which covers the life and the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard, a student at the University of Wyoming. We did want to acknowledge a recent event that has happened in that ongoing story of Matthew, the aftermath of Matthew's death. We recorded this podcast before these recent events transpired, so we wanted to at least take a moment to acknowledge what has gone on. Yeah, kind of breaking news pretty recently, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, a New York Times article has announced that Matthew Shepard will be interred at the Washington National Cathedral uh, 20 years after after his death. And uh, we were, weren't, weren't, weren't expecting that to happen necessarily when we recorded the episode, but we wanted to draw some attention to it. Yeah, it's cool to see the layering of what's going on in the real world with this, this story about this real event that happened. Um, we we now know that the parents had not laid Matthew to rest for these 20 years because they were worried about someone desecrating his grave, which, of course, that topic about, you know, the, that that culture surrounding people's treatment of each other is a lot of what the play is about and what we get into in the episode that you're about to listen to. So we hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. And this is your No Script team. Enjoy. Love you, Wyoming, but you need to get some more yeah. people. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of beautiful aridness. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And thank you so much for tuning in again, you impeccable taste human being, you. Um, we are talking about another play this week. We have um, the Laramie sort Project of. this week. <laughs> it's sort of a it's, play. <laughs> it's, it's mostly, a, we, it's, we should get into that too. But I think, I, I, I think I'll what make we that my first question after I've done yeah. the synopsis because I, I don't know, it's kind of a weird genre. Yeah, we got to jump right into it. I'm very excited to kind of talk about what this uh, dramatic work is. Um, But it is The Laramie Project, which is a play by Moises Kaufman. We've mentioned his name before, but I've never done a play by him, so it's very exciting to get to do that. Um, And and uh, we should say, too, it's, it's by Moises Kaufman and the members of the Tectonic Theater Project. It's a yes. it's a group compilation of which Moises Kaufman was the leader. Many of the other company members contributed pretty significantly as well. So shout out to them if they're listening. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. This is an ensemble uh, kind of written and produced play and a lot of chunk of this play is 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 about the process so we're going to get into the process eventually i'm just going to give you a little bit of context to start with this play was written by a real life event that happened in 1998 which uh was the murder in laramie wyoming of matthew shepherd um and many of you probably remember this event uh it was a, a both a huge deal for the town itself but also for national news um it got picked up and talked about a lot. The process took over a year. And during the course of that time, the uh, Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project um, went to Laramie and interviewed a whole bunch of the citizens of that town and got their stories, wrote them down, logged them, and then over the course of the following year, wrote a play about that, that, that year in Laramie, Wyoming's 
existence. Um, that play was produced for the first time in 2000 at the, let me just look at my notes as to what theater it was, the Rixton Theater. Uh, premiered there by the Denver or, at the Denver Center Rickitson, Theater Company. Maybe Ricketson. Ricketson. Yeah, you're I'm right. Ricketson Theater. Kind of a weird name. And notably, yep. that's in Denver, which is near Laramie. It's not yep. as near as Fort Collins, but it's not as far away as New York, for example. I mean, Denver right. is within a few hours of Laramie. Yep. Uh, so it was easily able to uh, for people to travel there if they wanted to uh, from Laramie. Uh, that went, it was then uh, performed at the Union Theater Company in two in two thousand in February of two thousand. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, November of two thousand two. Nope, I'm going to recount that. It was, in fact, 2000 when it was performed at the Union Square Theater, and then it performed in 2002 in Laramie, Wyoming. So over the course of two years, it played a bunch in in both the region that it was from, but also on Broadway in New York. And there's been a movie. Uh, I believe it was PBS. I did not write that down, but I believe it was PBS who asked them to film a movie version of the Laramie Project due to its huge popularity. It's actually still fairly popular. There's been a follow-up script. They went back to the town 10 years later and produced sort of an addendum story set of interviews. I don't know. We'll talk about what it is. Uh, yeah, and yep. it, that's called the Laramie Project 10 years later. And now the two plays kind of exist in a pair called the Laramie Cycle. We are mm -hmm. only talking today about the Laramie Project, the, the first, first of the two scripts. We are not talking about 10 years later or the grouping of them together. Um, yes. Like Jackson said, this is the story of the murder of Matthew Shepard. That is the bulk of what is told in the play. So what happens is that the Tectonic Theater Project goes to Laramie several times to conduct interviews, and there's sort of two layers to the, I don't know, the play, the story that is produced as a result of that. The first layer is the company members basically telling us about the process of interviewing people. So we sort of get the story of them going to the town, and then the story of them going to the town contains the descriptions, the uh, the recollections, the firsthand accounts of the story, really of the aftermath of the murder of Matthew Shepard. Um, that includes maybe uh, maybe the bulk of the play starts just after Matthew is found through the trial and imprisonment of the second of the two men who committed the crime. There are a enormous number of characters, uh, yeah. <laughs> more than you could ever possibly keep track of if you are just reading and probably even if you are an audience member. Uh, several of them kind of have storylines that travel through the script that are bigger or different or than the than the main story. Maybe you'd call them subplots. I'm not sure. I'll talk in a minute about the language that I'm struggling to find about it. But um, a couple of those people are uh, Reggie Flutie, I want to say, um, or maybe mm -hmm. Floody. Um, she is a, an officer who responds to the 911 call um, that somebody has found Matthew tied to the fence. And then her story going through ends up being about 
whether or not she's contracted HIV because she was forced due to some budget cuts to um, to treat Matthew, you know, do first aid and emergency response. Um, and he was all bloody and her hands had a bunch of cuts on them and, and she didn't have gloves on. So she may have contracted his HIV or not. That's one of the big questions. Matt Galloway is a bartender. He's one of the last people to see Matthew alive before Matthew was taken by the two men who killed him and, and, and killed. Um, he has a story that kind of continues throughout um, several other people. We may talk specifically about them as we go, but there's probably more than 50 characters, and they're all just residents or connections somehow to the town of Laramie. And and that's really the whole story. It's uh, I think that this is where I want to start the conversation, Jackson, because this play is like the closest thing I think you could ever get to a documentary on the stage. It's mm, yeah. it's it's a it's a genre of theater called verbatim theater. If you take a performance studies class or if you get a PhD in performance studies, like I would love to get someday, um, then this is uh, this is some of what is studied is sort of not traditional, um, not traditional stage theater. Um, this is. It's it's based on series of interviews. You know, my undergrad, we did a project like this. I'm sure lots of people do. Um, yep. Really interesting stuff. I, I think it's really fascinating. Is it a play? I don't know. It doesn't have a... I mean, it, it is a play in that there's characters that actors take on and show, but there's not like a... It's not a character who goes on a journey. You know, it's not like right. a classic story outline. It's really more like a documentary. It's a series of interviews. There's not a lot of, like, scene-by-scene scene action, and that may be one of the better arguments for it not being a quote-unquote play. It's not. There's no scenes between characters where, where things happen. It, it's, a, it's people recounting what they remember happening in the past. So I think my initial question to you, Jackson, is why not just make a documentary? Yeah, I think I think because plays can do this. Um, I think ultimately is 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 the is 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 my answer to it is that plays should do this. This is uh, a kind of a a different style of theater in general, uh, and that's as you mentioned verbatim. Uh, uh, I forget the exact term you use, but uh, verbatim text or verb verbatim word. Verbatim theater, yeah. Verbatim theater. It's also oral history, so it's accounting for a uh, a region's story in in the exact words of them. I would argue also within this is kind of almost a, a side point, but I would argue there is a third tier of this play that is not just the company and it is not just the recounting, but there are a couple internal scenes. There's they do break into scenes just every once in a while where like the, between the Baptist minister and the interviewer. That that scene is is t takes place between those too and you are invited into that scene I think a lot of this play is delivered to the audience and that is a very oral history performance studies approach but I think occasionally it does break into small scenes um, I think more importantly though the reason not to do it as a as a film documentary uh, at least first is because this is what theater 
can do. And the people who grabbed it were theater people. And theater is intrinsic to this story. It's a universe. Laramie is a university town. And a lot of people who uh, knew Matthew Shepard and were affected by his death were in the university theater. So uh, one of the first contacts that the tectonic theater made in the town was the university theater professor. So it's intrinsically tied to them. This is, um, and, and I think to say that theater or plays can't tell this denies an ancient right of theater, which is telling communities stories and communities uh, close, like local community stories in ways that empower the community to remember what happened and to move forward as a result of it. Right. And I think that the question is not, can it in a moral sense or a technical sense? The question is, how would a how can theater go about telling these stories in ways that's different from what other genres do? For example, conducting all of these interviews and producing a play for a lot of people would mean producing what we might call a straight play about the life and death and trial of Matthew Shepard, where someone plays Matthew Shepard and someone plays um, Aaron McKinley, etc. And and the scenes in that that lay out the course of what happened are played as scenes between characters. In this particular theatrical project, which is enormously effective. I love it. But in this particular theatrical project, the scenes are interviews between um, company members and people in the town. And so I wonder what's what's the active level of the plot? When you go into a scene and you listen to somebody say, well, this is what happened when I saw Matthew in the bar, for example. What are we watching? Do we watch? I mean, because theater, you know, it's both visual and auditory. So we listen to somebody recount something, but we want to see something as well. So I just wonder in the staging of the script, what makes this different than, you know, zooming in on somebody's face in a documentary? And then, in the, actually, in the same way a documentary would, like, Matthew Galloway, for example, he starts to talk. He'll say, oh, so I was at the Fireside Bar, and this is what happened. And then a narrator will interrupt that line to say, Matthew Galloway, bartender at the Fireside Bar. And then Matthew Galloway continues his line of, oh, then this is what happened on that night. I saw Matthew come in, and there were these two guys, and blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, that format, that's a documentary, right? Right. Interview begins. Absolutely. Matthew Galloway starts talking. Side of the screen, right next to his face in the close-up, appears the words, Matthew Galloway, bartender at the Fireside Bar. And Matthew Galloway mm-hmm. goes on to tell his story. So I'm, I'm interested in what, what differentiates this from just being the written version of a documentary. Perhaps that's a better way to ask this question. Instead of, why not do a documentary? What makes this different than a documentary? What makes this different from just the script of the documentary of the Laramie Project. Yeah. Well, I think this, for me, this ties back to what theater is. Theater has some other um, uh, reverent power that connects to ritual and to art and to uh, people coming into a place and having to look at the faces of the people delivering the content of the play. Um, I think that's, that's maybe the strength that this offers. I, I think I ultimately agree with you. This is basically a documentary. You could flip it right over to a documentary and all the pieces would coincide pretty seamlessly. But what you would miss is the 
the art and the ritual part of it. I think we all have watched documentaries pretty and are able to deal with them pretty, you know, blase Lee, if I can verb that, um, the, you can, you can watch something on a screen and you're not really connected. You receive the information and maybe it does hit you personally, but I, I would argue it hits you nowhere near as personally as people embodying the, the characters themselves standing, you know, varying five to 50 feet from you, depending on where your seat is and delivering this in a company. It also, makes your the the act of a stage production and a small cast playing multiple roles engages your mind in a way differently than just watching the real people say their own parts as uh, on a documentary I, and i think I that's... actually think that you just nailed it right on that the key difference for me between the Laramie Project, a play by Moises Kaufman, and the imagined The Laramie Project, a documentary by Moises Kaufman, is not the script. I think that you're right, that if they had decided to film those interviews instead of just record them and turn them into a play, they pretty much could have had a documentary with virtually the same script. But yeah. what's different about the play is the key element of engaging the audience's imagination. That's where theater steps in and becomes something really different from other mediums. And it's one of the reasons why I don't always think Broadway musicals and plays uh, do all that well, do, do all that much for me, I mean, um, because I think that they don't allow as much imagination as some theater projects can. And the Laramie Project mm. requires a lot of the audience. Like I said at the beginning, the character list for this play is enormous. Yeah. To to as an audience member to track character to character, that's a challenge, and it makes you engage and say, "Okay, those glasses. The last time I saw those glasses, they were playing uh, Stephen Johnson, the Unitarian minister." Okay, so I'm tracking that. That's Stephen Johnson. What's he gonna say now? Oh, okay. So they got the apron on. That means he's Matthew Galloway, the bartender. Oh, okay. Uh, that means that he's Matthew Shepard's friend. So to track characters, to track the way that you know a, a real person sitting in front of you and telling the story of finding Matthew Shepard tied to the fence. I, I mean, the way that that must utilize your imagination has got to be just incredible in a way mm -hmm. that, and not not in a weaker way than documentaries. I actually think I'll push back against some of your criticism of documentary. Um, <laughs> I think that this could have been a very effective documentary. I love documentaries. I don't, I haven't studied them, so I don't have the language to describe them as well. And I, <laughs> sure. think, I think I'm going to struggle a little bit in doing some analysis of the script because it's 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 a format that I'm a little unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. But I love it. It would have been very effective. But it's different in theater. Not not better or worse, I don't think, but just different. And engaging, forcing the audience to imagine these things that happened, you know, puts them in a place of, you know, being an active participant in the telling of Matthew Shepard, right? At watching a movie of any kind, I don't believe you're an active participant, and that's one of the things yeah. that makes theater really awesome. By being an audience member, you are actively part of the experience. A movie can exist whether anybody sees it or not. Uh, theater does not exist without someone watching it. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree. I'd be interested to hear some of your, uh, your, your critique of the, 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 the backlash of the documentary as well. But certainly the fact that there is uh, eight actors playing, as you said, 20 plus people. Um, 
reading it makes it difficult. But I th- and and that's that's something I wanted to bring up too is the reading of this play is more difficult than previous plays we've done, which is interesting because as you said, there isn't. It's not like you're tracking complicated through line plot or anything. It's just telling of an event. However, the the keeping the characters separate, I think, is much harder for the reader than it is for the audience member, especially when you take into account the craft of the actors and what they can do with props and costumes and such. So that was something and, interesting. And the craft of the design well. team. Credit to them. It's not just a challenge for the audience or the actors to try to keep characters straight. Uh, the production team is going to have a difficult time, I think, producing a really effective version of this play because a lot of the upfront work is going to be imagining what world this play exists in. Mm-hmm. Does this exist in a world where a simple change of glasses is a change of characters? That seems to be what Moises Kaufman suggests in the notes for the script. But you could imagine a different world where there's not much costume change, where it's mostly acting change, or maybe there's a lot more costume change, or maybe yeah. there's a lot more lighting and set changes to help differentiate between scenes. A lot of the work of figuring out how to tell the audience who, what, when, where, and why is going to be upfront imaginative work right at the beginning and then incredibly precise technical execution of all of the plans that you have for this. Because reading the play, the who, what, when, where, why is the difficult part of the script. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an overly <laughs> complex story, but it is a little bit overly complex in terms of tracking just the basics of the context of the scene. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the writing does help us a little bit with that you especially for the where um the the script just the writing alone includes lots of beautiful description of the place um i think that above anything else uh set me into the storyline was the first you know maybe 10 pages of the script uh is all about these people just talking about laramie wyoming and why They either like it or maybe don't like it or why it's hard and they just set you into the place. And I feel and I feel like whether the design team decides to do a pretty aggressive set set design or whether it's a pretty bare minimum, the words will carry that across. And I think that's one of the the stellar parts of the especially the early writing of the script is setting you into a place that many of us have never been to. Absolutely. And if you're reading the play rather than seeing it. Um, I would recommend just keeping a thumb or a bookmark on the character page. Yeah. I found that once I had read about a quarter of the play and realized I'm going to have no luck remembering these names and who specifically they are, that if I just flip back and checked, oh, he's the minister. Okay, great. I could go back and then I'd be right on board again. So just as a word of advice, if you haven't read it yet, I'd recommend keeping that character sheet open because it contains a lot of really helpful information. And pro tip, don't read it on Kindle. Uh, oh boy, <laughs> that makes it difficult. <laughs> that does sound difficult. Yikes, Speaking yikes, from yikes. personal experience, so um, you want to kind of jump into the the meat of the 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 quote unquote story of this? Um, yeah. So the play is structured in three acts, each act telling a different part of the story of the you know, what happens and the subsequent trial. The details of the crime are really grisly. Um, One of America's more well-known hate crimes, Matthew Shefford, I think as Jackson said at the beginning, beaten, tied to a fence in the freezing cold, left overnight, probably because he's gay, by two, he was gay, between by two men um, in a a pickup truck. And those are sort of the 
basic details of what happened in terms of what the police knew. The first act ends with the discovery of Matthew Shepard at the fence by the man who found him while he was biking. And, you know, the first part of the first act, like Jackson said, is mostly about Laramie, who they are, what it's like to live there, some kind of basic introduction to Matthew and what his life was like. And then some description of the bar that he was last seen in. But then it, it ends with Matthew being sort of hurriedly rushed to the emergency room after being cut away from the fence. The injuries are terrible. It doesn't look like he's going to survive. He's brought into the emergency room where Dr. Cantway is operating on him. And Dr. Cantway has a really beautiful reflection at the end of that first act. I wonder if you wanted to kind of do an overview of that for us, Jackson. One of my favorite moments of the play. Yeah, well, Dr. Cantway is kind of serving in the emergency room that day. And uh, uh, Aaron McKinney, who is the one of the two people who committed the crime against Matthew Shepard, uh, the other one was Russell Henderson, and I'm sure we'll bring up his name later. But um, Aaron McKinney is brought in by his girlfriend, who uh, he got in a fight, presumably the day after he... Uh, brutally assaulted Matthew Shepard, and uh, he's brought into the emergency room. And she, he, uh, Dr. Cantway starts treating him, and during this time, within a very short time of each other, is when Matthew Shepard is brought in by the uh, deputy, Reggie Flutie, uh, who has responded to one of the university students finding Matthew Shepard on the road. And so Dr. Cantway switches over to Matthew Shepard, who just came in, not knowing at this time that Aaron McKinney was the one who horribly beat up Matthew Shepard and they're in the same, presumably just a couple stalls down in the ER. And so Dr. Cantway has this pretty kind of a uh, beautiful description of, of what that feeling is of, of she compares it to uh, the way God feels um, when he's kind of overseeing all of us and seeing the, the pain and the hurt that we all uh, do to each other and seeing all the connections. But for the most part, we as humans don't, don't see those connections. We don't know until after the effect, after the fact. And in, in the that sense moment, of God looking down and seeing with compassion, sort of compassion that maybe outweighs the situations that we get ourselves into with each other. That you know, yeah. she, or he, sorry, he, Doctor Cantway, treated both of these boys' bodies, um, and that there's this sort of greater conflict with their souls that only God sees. Yeah. And, and that Dr. Cantway felt that compassion, that same level of compassion, and perhaps, you know, feels differently now that, that he knows the full context of the situation, but he remembers clearly uh, that moment of caring for both of those people despite of what, what they ultimately did that he, that he didn't even know. Um, which is a kind of a stunning end to the act, which then transitions into Act 2, which has to do with uh, a lot of people's handling of the information um, that, that as as word starts to get out that this has happened and eventually it kind of blows up and goes uh, national. Uh, more and more people begin to hear about it um, and begin to piece together that it's in fact Matthew. A lot of people are connected to Matthew in the town. Um, he is he's connected to a, a number of his friends from high school that are interviewed throughout this. Uh, he's in, uh, contacted uh, the limo drivers in town, bar owners. Uh, we, we briefly mentioned Matt Galloway, who is the bartender at the, at the sunrise, the sun something, um, the, the, the tavern or the bar. The fireside that he bar. 
Thank you, Fireside. And there was, there was, never mind. Uh, <laughs> there's no connection there. Um, at the Fireside bar, and uh, and just it's clear that a lot of people had a lot of connection to him, and this this news shakes the community throughout Act Two. Yeah, and and in regards to Matthew, the course of Act Two is about really whether or not, and not even whether or not he's going to survive, because everybody knows he's not, but sort of the course of trying to keep him alive as long as possible as he's in the hospital. He is brought in, like we said, at the end of Act 1, and Act 2, at the end, he dies as a result of his injuries. His family arrives, and and the big, maybe, defining change that happens in Act 2 is that the media arrives. They get wind of this hate crime that occurred in Laramie and sort of swarm the town. And a lot of the locals describe feeling like they were painting Laramie as this place filled with hate. That, oh, yeah. it's only in this small town out in the middle of nowhere where something like this could happen. And the residents of Laramie are saying, hey, what are you talking about? We got the two guys that did it in jail in one day. Right. We found them. We put them to trial. They're in jail. So I don't yep. know what you're talking about. What do you mean we're bigoted or what? You know, we mm-hmm. we took care of it. Two crazies. A lot of the locals really like to say that these two men are just sort of crazy people, not representative of the town. And they just, they went off and did something terrible and we put them in jail like you should do. And yep. there's some balance between that view of Laramie and the view of some of sort of a different population of Laramie, which says, no, 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 pretending like these two boys aren't a part of the town, aren't representative of how the town feels about people who are gay is wrong. Uh, One woman in the play who is lesbian describes that she's afraid in Laramie to walk down the street holding her girlfriend's hand. And this is even prior to the attack. So two sort of strains of Laramie start to heat up sort of in tension with each other. The one strain saying, this isn't representative of us. We're good people just doing our best. Another strain saying, no, this is representative of you, of us. Yeah, it's absolutely. This the second act kind of has some great commentary on the, you know, the town defined by either scandal or hate or um, just events happening. What, what happens when a small town that's normally off the radar gets branded nationally with one thing? And you have a lot of people talking about the the this how the town happens uh, to get to the bottom of it so fast. They locked them up. And in general, they talk about how great that it is that the town has generally a live and let live policy for the gay and homosexual people in the town. It's uh, they, they in general pride themselves on this, right? Except for uh, one of the people, Jonas Sloniker is mentioned. He's a, a his his character description is a gay man in his 40s within uh that lives in Laramie, Wyoming, and he says that that's such crap. This this live and let live policy um is 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 not as glowing as some people hold it up to be. You know, as long as I don't tell you that I'm gay, you won't beat the crap out of me <laughs> is not the the best way for right. for a town and, to and live. And I actually think that 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 tension around that line ends up being one of the major themes and strands of the play. This question of, 
in Laramie, in places like Laramie, the the culture is sort of, well, don't tell me about the fact that you're gay. Don't be gay around me. Don't show off your gayness in public and, and nothing will happen. Live and let live. I don't care that you're gay as long as I don't have to see it. And right. then as a result of this hate grime, some of the people in Laramie start to push back against that idea. But that's not maybe actually all that great of a philosophy. Um, and, and that gets connected with the crime in some ways because the two men who killed Matthew claim that one of the reasons they did it is that Matthew is hitting on them. And they said, right. oh, I'm not gay. So what? They got to beat this guy up and die into a fence? <laughs> Obviously, it's yeah, a really exactly. poor reason. But, it, and, but some people in the play sort of hold that up as the most extreme version of the live and let live policy. Yeah, and that and it kind of has ripple effects throughout the town. Many different characters begin to grapple with that. Most of it comes comes to fruition in Act Three, um, but by the end of Act Two, we have a, a good deal of people just kind of dealing with the ramifications and questioning their beliefs. Uh, a number of the 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 the, the two I'm, I'm spacing. Do you remember the sergeant's name? Uh, the there's Reggie Flutie who found Matthew Shepard, but there was uh, the the sergeant. There's so many characters, guys. <laughs> so many characters in this play. Um, anyway, they are all kind of uh, trying to balance their beliefs from before this event with now grappling with the real-life situation of a hate crime and and its ramifications on the community in general. The, the last, the last uh, monologue of Act 2 is with Doc Connor, who is the limousine driver in town, and he used to drive Matt around. Um... And he's talking about hope and 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 not in general, the community at large has said Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney need to die. They need to be given the death penalty for this. And and Doc Connor voices at the end that maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's not what Matthew would have wanted. There's a lot of messiness in Act Two as this community tries to figure out how to move forward as a result of this event. Right. And then as we move into Act Three, kind of the major course of act three is the trial of russell let me see if i say these names russell henderson and aaron mckinley uh, as they face the results of of what happened the, the, there's two separate trials that are described i believe russell is first and aaron second and the question becomes you know what is the town of laramie going to do with these men and the there is no impulse to let them off or anything like that. Really, the question is how harsh is the sentence going to be? Right. No one, no one is really, really game to to let anyone off the hook. They come together. The whole town comes together around this this trial. And yes, some of them note that, for instance, uh, Russell Henderson is is a part of the Mormon Church in town. And though the Mormon Church uh, excommunicates him, I forget the exact term that the the Mormon Church uses for that, but they strike him from the records of the church. His uh, his mentor says, "I'm not going to leave him as a result of that. That's just not what I would do." And uh, uh, Russell's family comes around him and asks to ask for leniency in his sentencing, especially early on in the third act. That's a big thing: is Russell Henderson's trial. Um, it's whether he will serve either concurrent life sentences or consecutive life sentences. And he is ultimately charged with consecutive life sentences, effectively removing the possibility that he'll ever leave prison. Right, because each of his 
crimes that he's charged with will get a full life sentence, but the judge can allow basically both life sentences to run together. And so I, I don't know, there must be some sort of year cap on a life sentence. So the family is hoping that if he runs the sentences together, that maybe when he's a very old man, they'll be able to see him or not them, but maybe their children or whatever. Um, but the judge decided, no, they're going to run one after another. And he, he spends the rest of his life in prison. The play deals in poignant moments, really. And one right. really poignant one exists during the trial of Russell Henderson, during the jury selection, um, Russell is, has to be in the room while they select the jury. And the question posed to each of the jurors is, would you be willing to put this man to death? And the play describes how one after another, the jurors say, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Yeah. Yes, I would. And the play asks, you know, what must it be like if you're Russell to sit there and listen to the residents of Laramie say one after another, Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Because remember, this isn't a big federal case. The jurors are people in the area. This is a trial by your peers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all community members, all people who assumedly at the start of the play, they talk about one degree of separation with everyone in the town of Wyoming. So if you don't know the person, you know someone who knows the person. In the town Absolutely. of Wyoming. <laughs> Dang it. Did I say Wyoming? Laramie. Laramie Wyoming's Wyoming. only got enough people for one town, really. <laughs> <laughs> they make they make a joke like that early in the play. <laughs> but yeah. Yep. <laughs> not a lot of people in Wyoming. Love you, Wyoming, but you need to get some more yeah. people. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of beautiful aridness. Anyway, the uh, the trial <laughs> uh, continues on, and he is ultimately sentenced. Let's talk about some of those beautiful moments in in Act Three, because there's a bunch of them. You want to just kind of ping pong a little bit and talk about some of them. The one I I would bring up next, as long as we're right in this uh, in this moment, is the next trial with Aaron Aaron McKinney, um, who is uh, assumedly. Assumedly going to get the death penalty. The jury, uh, his his trial is is awful for everyone involved. Uh, it's it's clear that he committed all the crimes that uh, almost all the crimes. He ends up being confirmed as it. But what ends up happening is Matthew Shepard's father stands up and has this. Uh, he's asked uh, Aaron McKinney's family asks Matthew Shepard's family to not ask for the death penalty, ultimately and. His Matthew Shepard's father stands up and has this in 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 my script it was three pages of a monologue of of this this um blessing slash curse over Aaron McKinney, where he's saying, I I give you your life, but I give it to you so that every Christmas, every holiday, you remember that Matt isn't here anymore. And your life is because of him. And as a result of our mercy, his mercy over you. And that is a an incredibly poignant moment in Act 3, for me at least, is this, he says he doesn't forgive him, he'll never forgive him. Um, it's not, you know, the, the Hallmark card ending to a case like this, or even a motivational poster ending to something like this. But he, he speaks these words over him, and that's it, that's the end. The jury passes sentence, and he goes away. Yeah, and that moment is really sort of the climax moment of Act 3. They've been building to this question of what's going to happen. Are these boys going to be killed as a result of killing? 
and Matthew Shepard's father gives this beautiful speech, which I assume is also verbatim. Um, there's no marker exactly for what's verbatim and what's not. Sometimes in oral history texts, you'll get like quotes around verbatim stuff and not quotes around others. There's not there's no features like that in the script, but I assume it's verbatim because remember this is all a true story. Matthew Shepard's father did get up and give a speech like that. I even somewhere in my memory sort of remember there maybe being a video of it in the courtroom mm. or they probably didn't allow cameras in the courtroom so that must not be right but um i i that speech is something i know of beyond this play um, right that, yep. that defining moment of that trial one beautiful moment that i love is um one of the through characters through the whole play is Jedediah Schultz, who is a University of Wyoming theater student. Uh, and he describes how in order to get to college, his family is poor. This is prior to Act 3. I'll get to the moment in a second. In order to get to college because his family was poor, he needed to get a theater scholarship. And to do that, he needed to win this acting competition. And so he performed a scene from Angels in America. And his parents who he describes as being at everything he's ever done in his life, they've been there for, said, look, if you perform this scene from Angels in America because it's about people who are gay, we're not going to be there for it. We don't support that. We won't be there. He decides to go ahead and do the scene, wins the competition, comes to the University of Wyoming, and then all this stuff happens with Matthew Shepard. So the year after Matthew is killed, they do Angels in America at the theater, which is obviously a hugely bold, amazing choice for a department like that. And Jedediah says, I'm going after the leading role. I'm going to get this part. I'm going to work so stinking hard at it. And his parents say, isn't this the scene you did in high school? Look, we do not support this lifestyle. You can't, you should not do this scene, this script. We're not going to come see it. And Jedediah has this, I think, a really interesting response, which is, you just came and saw me play Macbeth last year. I murdered <laughs> yeah. two children on stage. And you're talking about supporting that lifestyle? I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. Uh -huh. um, which is, I think, just a lovely uh, this story to tell of the ongoing journey of Jedediah in response and reflection to all this stuff. And he goes on to play that to, to get the role of Pryor in Angels in America. And the interview team describes coming back to see him in that play the next year. Yeah. And how, and how his perspective has changed as a result of it. That's a, that's a really beautiful moment. Um, another another one that sticks out to me is during the course of the trial, uh, Westboro Baptist Church and uh, Ralph. Let's see what's what's the uh, the preacher's name or Fred. I'm sorry, Reverend Fred Phil Phelps is there, kind of railing against homosexuality. And uh, one of uh, Matthew Shepard's friends, Romaine Patterson, organizes a protest against the protest, where um, a whole bunch of people come in, you know, head to toe angel outfits, tall, big wings, and kind of encircle. Uh, this this preacher who is 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 uh, protesting outside of this event, and and whatever way that scene moves you, the image of angels encircling someone, I think this gets at some of the holiness and the uh, the reverence that theater can do. That this this wouldn't necessarily in a, in a documentary, this would be you know maybe live footage of this actually happening. They would show this, but I think theater can treat this with a little bit more. Um, 
sacred, I think is the word I was actually trying to say. This moment is a, almost a sacred moment as if the, uh, if the cast decides to do any visual component with this of people encircling with angels' wings, that, that is certainly a striking visual in my mind after reading this play. Yeah, I love her description of that. And, and that description is given by one of Matthew Shepard's good friends. I believe you'd pronounce her name Romaine? Ro- I think so. Ro- that's how. Say Romaine. I, I feel that's my impression. It sounds like the lettuce, and I feel like that might be <laughs> Well, wrong. it's spelled like the lettuce, so what yeah, can we do about I, it? <laughs> I, I, I apologize to the world if I uh, am inadvertently insulting her. I think she's an amazing person from what I've read in this play. Um, but that, what I love about that story, Jackson, is that it's a sort of an ongoing part of her story, too. She's introduced early on as being one of Matthew Shepard's friends, and she sort of grows in confidence and leadership in the um, anti-LGBTQ movement, um, sort of fighting back against discrimination against LGBTQ people. And at the end of the play has said she's going to go on to be that for the world, go into communications and politics and, uh, you know, real world change to combat hate. Um, and that's a really sort of beautiful progressive journey for that character as well. Uh, I have a, another really great moment that I love. Um, Aaron, I'm going to say Kreifels, is the man who discovers Matthew tied to the fence. He's out biking when it happens and hits a rock and, and falls over and kind of gets up and, oh, what's that over there, and discovers Matthew. And throughout the play, maybe more than four or five times, he asks the question, why me? Why Why did I discover it? Uh, many, maybe I would say most of the characters from Laramie have some sort of faith. And so the play is actually fairly religious. And this character, Aaron, the not, not Aaron as in the murderer, but Aaron the discoverer, um, yep. this Aaron ask that question a lot. Why would God make me the person to discover him? I, I can't help him. He should have had a paramedic discover him, or he should have had somebody with a pickup truck discover him to get him into town or, or something. I just had a bike. What? I didn't do any good. Why me? And he he has this moment after the trial and after Matthew Shepard's father has let the, the murderer Aaron um, live and live in prison the rest of his life. I assume they're still um, in prison unless they've uh, subsequently died of some sort there. Um, that Aaron after the trial, the, the the discoverer Aaron, has this moment where he, he says that I, I sort of hit me during the trial that the reason God wanted me to find Matthew is that Matthew didn't die alone. You know, I'm one of the only people who's out in that part of the country biking, and if I hadn't found him, he would have lied. This body would have laid there maybe for weeks before anybody would have gone out there to see him. I may have been the only person uniquely positioned to make sure that Matthew didn't die alone in the middle of the uh, Wyoming prairie. Yeah, he talks about kind of the 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 images that he's left with afterwards. Act two, the couple scenes we get with him, he's he's grappling with that, and I agree the payoff in in act three of him kind of coming to terms, maybe not to peace with that, but coming to terms with why he was there is is, is another wonderful moment. The other one that I wanted to bring up was uh, Father Schmidt. And really, this is a play long moment with him because he has a number of great appearances. And it has to do with what you were saying about this town and its religions. The, the, the big religions there are... Uh, 
uh, Mormonism and Christianity. Uh, specifically, there's a pretty prominent Baptist church that is mentioned in here, and then there is a Catholic church as well. Um, very different responses from all three of these religious entities. But uh, Father Schmidt of the Catholic Church right away uh, wants to hold a vigil for Matthew, the, the night that it happens pretty much, or the day after it happens. As soon as they find out, he wants to hold a vigil. And he asks the other pastors in the area whether they want to be a part of it. And they say, no, we're going to wait for which way the wind blows. And Father Schmidt right away takes a stand. Um, oh, I forgot to mention uh, another religious entity in the town is a, a Unitarian church um, who uh, ends up commenting on Father Schmidt throughout this and this this act that he that he did to hold a vigil right away. And as such, the team goes and interviews him, and he has he has one of the uh, the 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 more fervent pleas to this team to tell this story well in the play, and it and it it's very. Um, poignant and striking. He pretty much asks them to please, whatever you do, don't don't misquote us, basically. Stay true to what happens. Stay true to who we are. I'm going to talk to you, but please take this with some weight. If you're going to write a play about it, you got to say it right. Um, and, and as for what happened here, and that comes back in the end of the play again. He has one of the final lines of the play where he kind of reiterates that. And I think this play does that really well. You mentioned religion. I think it gives a fair role to um, all of those religious uh, entities that I mentioned. It, 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 you know, talks about the Mormon Church and their response. Talks about the Unitarian Church and their response. Talks about the the Catholic Church and Father Schmidt. Talks about the Baptist Church, and it even brings in, you know, uh, Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church into this. And I think it gives it. It's. For, for for a really divisive topic with all those religious entities around, I think it gives a lot of them a very good shot as to express the the viewpoint in in opposition or in support. Yeah, for what happened. it actually does that all the way through for for really everything. I'm beyond yeah. impressed with how fair the script is, and and maybe even going beyond fair into almost the territory of impartial between mm-hmm. some of these characters. I mean, even. Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney, who've done this terrible, awful thing, the script does not deal in hatred with them. It deals in compassion even with them. Now, some of the characters in the script, and remember these are verbatim words from them, don't deal in compassion, but overall, the script does. And and the script gives them their time to to reflect on the terrible things that they've done and realize what this is going to mean for their life and and be full of remorse. And the script gives a fair shot, at least, you know, as awful as it is, to their defense of hating gay people. Uh, Right. Maybe Matt you really went way out of his bounds and trying to pick him up, you know? I mean, stuff like that that I don't know that the play necessarily had to do and the writing team had to do and how fair they mm-hmm. were, even to the more reprehensible characters, even to Fred Phelps, the Westboro Baptist leader. I, I don't feel like the play paints him as the horrible, terrible overlord of hate that a lot of people in the world <laughs> do, and maybe fairly. Um, yeah. You know, the the play gives him his time to say, look, this is why I'm doing this. I'm out here because I think the Bible says this, and if the Bible says this, then we got to do this. It you know it doesn't it doesn't ever stereotype or exaggerate. Right. And I think I have an inkling that one of the reasons it does that, and one of the reasons the writing team took that mission never to stereotype, never to exaggerate, never to caricature, is based on what you just said about Father Schmidt. the The interview 
scene where Father Schmidt says to the two people who are interviewing him, look, you have a duty to do this job right and to not exaggerate the hate is basically what he says. He says, look, all the all this language about how terrible people who are gay are, that's violence against people who are gay. And if you use this opportunity to to make more violence by exaggerating that hate and caricaturing it into something into something really demonic, then you are doing a disservice to the movement and you are you're creating more violence. And he looks at him in that interview scene and says very seriously, you have a job to deal in what is true and what mm-hmm. is correct. And that's your job. And because they put that scene so fully in there, I think it really made an impact on that writing team to listen to somebody look at them very seriously and say, do not exaggerate the hate. Do right. not make the hate worse. And someone who worked against the hate in the moment, knew exactly what to do against it, still say, do not make this worse. And I, 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 I would guess that those interviewees went back to their hotel last night and called the whole group together and played yeah. that recording and said, look, we got to rethink this. We got to right. sit down for a minute and seriously think about what we're doing and, and come back to the table with what is probably a much stronger script. Now, that I might be doing them a disservice. Maybe they knew from the beginning that they were going to be so fair and so even-handed and they're just so careful not to exaggerate, not yep. to demonize. To present. Like it's just this right. is very much a presentation of what happened um, verbatim, as we've said, but without playwright critique it allows the the people who spoke to critique the people of the town who were involved um but there's very little um overarching uh you know the the god critique the god of the playwright critiquing and enforcing their will on the situation it is just right and that's sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation why it has so much in common with documentary you know, the best documentaries, the documentaries that are winning awards, that are critically praised, that are, you know, hold so much weight, do that. They don't offer a lot of God, like Jackson said, God critique, that upper level of looking down on the people that they interview. Instead, the best documentaries present people and opinions and facts as they happened and allow audiences to interpret and understand. And the Laramie Project does that incredibly well. Yes, indeed. We're coming along to the end of our time, but I did want to kind of work our way back to the beginning. So it's good that we uh, we 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 wound our way up there. This is we've we've talked about this play being a oral history, very community based. As a result, this is one of the first plays we've done that is not a necessarily a Tony winning play or a Pulitzer winning play. Yet it is a a, a highly valued play within uh, theater culture and has been produced often. Um, why do these community like plays like this that are very local community how do they trend obviously this play became national and had a much wider audience but why do these these narrow focus plays about regions and with without uh, without plot necessarily just recounting what happened why, why why do we do this as theater artists right absolutely the you know, the core of really, really good storytelling is specificity. The best stories look at specific moments, specific characters in, you know, specific regions. And then because a story is so specific, it is allowed to connect and make more sweeping humanitarian connections. 
you know, if we go back through the past, guess it's got to be episode, what, we're probably on 27, 28? Yeah, I don't know exactly like what that. number this will be as it comes out. Um, but if we look back on our 20-some scripts, what you'll see is a collection of very specific stories about very specific regions and very specific people in those regions that have these sort of beautiful, broad connections to life. I'll just use our first episode as a great example of that, Sweat. Sweat is about a people and a place and a moment that I have nothing to do with. Uh, <laughs> virtually no connection with factory workers who are on strikes in uh, Detroit. Is that right? In, uh, in, uh, a, in Somewhere bigger... out east. It was up in Pennsylvania, right? That's right, right, right. Uh, in Scranton, actually, I think. Yeah. And um, – uh, you know, I don't have any connection to that world. Never been on strike. Never worked in a factory. Um, I don't do really manual labor as part of my job, so I don't have a connection <laughs> to that particular, uh, um, you know, lifestyle. And yet, the story of sweat is really impactful to me because of its more universal connections. But the only way it achieves those so incredibly well is by zooming in rather than zooming out. And that's what plays like this are so great at. It zooms into what happened in Laramie, presents it as it happened, and then lets the audience identify these threads to their own life. I think you nailed it there. Absolutely. The, the, this, this zooming in on a place that we're not connected to necessarily, but realizing that we are unified with them nonetheless nonetheless, uh, exposing us to more worldviews and realizing there's not that much that that we would have done differently in the situation and trying to imagine yourself in this situation that didn't happen to you. Um, and, and, and it also has to do with, um, creating appreciation for those, those, that's those storylines. I forget which play we did, but we've talked about this before that, um, even the smallest stories should be talked about. Um, the the this obviously was a national story, much bigger. But maybe the story of Margie, who they you know they interviewed during this, isn't. She's a a, a smaller town uh, retired woman who used to be a bartender her whole life, and we hear a good chunk of her story in this play. It brings to light these these um, stories of people that are arguably pretty mundane, and yet. Because a play is uh, written about them, uh, because uh, th someone said this story is worth the telling, we get to experience that as well with this community as they went through this. And that, that unifies those who are separated from it, brings them together all into a, a space, which is a theater or your living room as you're reading this on your, in a play or on a Kindle, and you are together with them in that moment, which right. is and, quite a feat. And that's why the play's what, 50 character long character list, I think is a strength rather than a detraction, even when it's confusing. Because what Kaufman and his team did is take the regular folk of Laramie, the folk that aren't going to be in the news headlines, that even if you shot a documentary might not be the people you'd interview, and say, no, their story is part of this story as well. I love, there's a moment, I think it's act two, where a woman, and I think this is her only scene, comes in and describes how her husband is a highway patrolman. And at the same time that this event with Matthew Shepard happened, a patrolman in their unit was killed by a drunk driver on the highway. And the woman's story is basically like, you know, what happened to Matthew's terrible, I know, but it totally drowned out the fact that a highway patrolman was killed at the same time. That story didn't get any traction at all. And my husband lost one of the people in his unit. It's been it's been really hard. 
Stories like that that aren't part of the headline, but are part of the fabric of what happened in Laramie at that time are presented as just as important as the descriptions of Matthew Galloway, the last person to see Matthew Shepard alive. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think that's why it's called the Laramie Project and not something like the Shepard account or the, Sher- the, the, the Matthew Shepard Project or something like that. That's why we have another play 10 years later, the Laramie Project 10 years later, because it's, it's not just about this event, it's about this town and how it affected this large group of people and 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 the ramifications of it as it went forward. And it's also about how it affected the Tectonic Theater Group. You know, there's part of the yeah. story we haven't talked really much about, and maybe we have a few minutes here to just briefly touch on it, is that a chunk of the script is the actual people who were doing the interviews and their journals about what happened, their reflections on what it was like to interview these people. They talk about the moment of going to the fence where Matthew was found and how some of them broke down crying. They talk about how hard it was to work up the energy to interview another person after having just heard this other heartbreaking interview. They talk about the experience of watching these characters develop over several years, watching Jedediah be able to play Pryor in Angels of America, um, listening to the people of Laramie uh, tell them, you know, I love you, goodbye, as they're saying their final goodbyes and leaving. Uh, the, the, the actual process of creating the play is part of the play. Well, it is time for my weekly wrap-up, I'm afraid. Ah, we are at, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> we are at our, uh, uh, at our time limit. There is certainly more to cover, as always, in this play. So we'd love to hear any thoughts from you. If you have been in this play, if you've read this play, if you watch scenes from this play, um, whether at competitions or in small, you know, one-act or ten-minute theater com- uh, festivals, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. You can find us online on Facebook, Instagram, at Twitter, at NoScriptPodcast is the username or handle. Uh, you can also email us at noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to continue this conversation with you and provide avenues for you to talk about theater and having read the play especially. That's that's kind of what we do on this. So uh, hopefully we, we hear from you about this play especially. If you like this episode, if you like some of our other episodes, please share them on your preferred social media. That'll really help us out. If you like scripts, you probably know people who like scripts. So let's get them involved in the conversation as well. Our listening audience has been steadily rising over these past 20-some episodes, and we're really excited about that. We hope it keeps rising. And that that great listening audience can always find the podcast on Podbean. That's our main hosting site. It's also on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. If you feel so inclined, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook as well. So all those places are great places to locate it, and we're really excited about all the people who are engaging with us and listening as we talk about these awesome plays. If you want to support the podcast, uh, for those of you who have listened so far um, and and are enjoying what we're doing, if you want to... Give us a little bit of a tip. We do have a Patreon over on Patreon.com. We have a number of different tiers for you to choose from. As far as we have a $1 tier, which gets you access to some fun stuff. Uh, But we also have a $5 and a $10 tier as well. So go ahead and check it out. It's a great way to support the show and ensure that we keep talking about plays with you. 
I think that that's going to wrap it up for us. We will be with you with another script next Monday. As always, I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thanks for listening to No Script. We'll see you next week. See ya. See ya.